Good morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, we are going through this sermon series entitled, God, I Have a Question. This is the last sermon in that series. Uh, the question is, is the Bible trustworthy and historically accurate? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning as we talk about that topic. Uh, let's uh, begin by reading uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. It is by this gospel that you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you would have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one who was abnormally born. Uh, let's, let's pray together. I really believe, dear Lord, that we cannot say thank you enough. Your goodness, which is much greater than even your kindness, is, is seen in the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this morning, asking for wisdom and guidance through your Holy Spirit as we approach your word this morning. I pray that you'll meet us here. I pray that you'll speak to us. I pray that you will open up our hearts, our ears, our eyes, so that we can know your truth. And we pray these things once again in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see a very confident Paul. A very, very confident Paul that, that Jesus did die. That Jesus was buried. That Jesus was raised from the dead. The confidence that he stands is not based on any kind of feeling that's in his heart, right? He experienced the risen Christ. Paul spoke with those who walked with Jesus on earth, watched him die, and then physically ate with Jesus, physically touched him after his resurrection. He lists in this passage uh, Jesus' brother James, right? James grew up with Jesus. Jesus, uh, James saw Jesus and was skeptical even of his miracles. 
There is so much confidence in this passage. Notice also that Paul is confident that this is an, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He said, according to the Scriptures. As a Jewish scholar and a member of the Pharisee sect, Paul was able to see the truth in the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus Christ as Lord. And you and I, we believe, Paul, because we believe that this Scripture is inspired. However, there are also many skeptics who question the authorship of the Bible, that question the authorship of 1 Corinthians. Some doubt the historical accuracy, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And today, my hope is that we can just take a moment to clear that up, clear up the questions that have come up regarding the Holy Scriptures and how it points to Jesus Christ as Lord. I have three points for you. These are going to be three questions that we're going to uh, hopefully work through. The first question that I want you to write down is this. When were the New Testament letters written? And this is incredibly important. It's important because skeptics believe that there was a political power, specifically in Emperor Constantine, that pushed these 27 letters that we have in the New Testament through. Even though, according to skeptics, there were over 80 Gospels to be considered at that time. Some have suggested that the true Gospels, the true records of Jesus were hidden at that time. And if this is true, listen, if this is true, our understanding of the content and meaning of Christianity would be radically changed. It would mean that the core teachings of Jesus as deity, the atonement on the cross, the power of the resurrection, are all based on legends. Mistaken. Skeptics are teaching that our truth is just a legend that has been handed down and finally pushed through in the third century. However, however, there is actually evidence that the New Testament was written in the first century by eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is actually written evidence as early as 160 A.D. by Irenaeus of Lyons that there were 27 books of the New Testament being passed around. Eusebius, as early as 300 A.D., said that there are 27 accepted letters of the New Testament. These are well be before the dates proposed by skeptics in the mid-300s, half a century earlier. It is also important to point out that many of the rejected Gospels in that meeting were written in the second, third century, long after the apostles, the eyewitnesses, had died. The truth is, but by the time the canon of Scripture was adopted, there were already accepted canon floating around that was incredibly close to the one that we use today. 
And therefore, Emperor Constantine, church leaders, they weren't trying to hide the truth, but they were making official that which was already accepted as true. And that which was accepted as true 100 to 150 years before its adoption as the New Testament. And the New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. Today, we have over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts cataloged. 5,800. That's incredible. And I want you to just compare that with Homer's Iliad, which, which only has 1,000 manuscripts. 300 of those survived from the 9th, the 9th to 15th century. And yet we have 5,800 preserved, fragmented, and full manuscripts cataloged. And here's what's interesting to me and why I bring this up. I don't hear skeptics questioning Homer. Did Homer really write it? Did Homer even exist? How can we believe it's his actual writing if it's been copied so many times? If we were to use the same standards by which skeptics question the historical accuracy of the Bible, we wouldn't even have the writings of Plato, Aristotle, let alone Homer. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 16, 17, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those that will cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Paul was arguing and working hard towards this, this protection of what the apostles taught. The apostles saw with their own eyes. The apostles were able to touch this risen Lord. And many of these other gospels that were written even deny that Jesus was resurrected. Now here's a second question for you to consider. How does the New Testament, go ahead and put that back up. How does the New Testament compare with the literary writings of its time? That's a long question to write down. I'll give you some time to write it down because it, it's, it's also very important. Because skeptics will urge us to consider the New Testament as a fictitious writing, a writing of fiction. The content, the material, it's all fiction. Uh, Jesus walking on water, that's crazy. Jesus calming storms. That's crazy. Jesus raising people and himself from the dead are legends that have been developed over time. And then, I mean, we could take all day to talk about some of the Old Testament legends, right? People swallowed by whales. Donkeys talking to humans. Floods that wipe out the whole earth. Skeptics would suggest the Bible reads more like a kid's storybook than a historical account. 
Now, I've shared this story before. I want to share it again because it's my favorite story about Solomon Ingalaba. Many of you know and have, have met and experienced Solomon Ingalaba. While Solomon and Allison, missionaries that we support, were on furlough, uh, they stayed here in Knoxville, Tennessee, so Allison could give birth to her first child, Isana. And during that time, Cornerstone took a group to work with Appalachian Service Project in Jonesville, Virginia. Solomon was working on my team at that time. We were putting together a deck, uh, some guttering for a man who raised chickens. And during a break, a chicken crossed the road. This isn't a joke. (laughs) The chicken actually got hit by a car. It was still flopping around when Solomon rushed over to that chicken and broke its neck, quickly brought it to the homeowner, encouraging him to prepare it for a meal. The owner then took that chicken and threw it in a ditch and said the dogs will eat it later. And I wish you all were there to be able to see Solomon's face. You see, in Solomon's home country of Tanzania, preparing a chicken for guests was a high honor. And in our culture, it'd be like preparing a filet mignon, right? And then just throwing it out in the ditch for animals to eat. There's a huge cultural difference. That's what I'm trying to communicate, that you and I, we hear about someone wringing the neck of a chicken, and we're like, oh, that poor chicken, right? Not in their culture. It's important that when we read the Bible, we read according to the culture. we got to take off our 21st century Western culture glasses for a moment. Because early works of fictions did not include realistic details and dialogues that read as eyewitnesses' accounts. This genre of details and realistic details and dialogue like this, that's only been developed over the past 300 years. Work of fiction would not include details like Jesus taking a nap during a storm. It would not include details like how many days it took Jesus to visit the tomb of Lazarus, or how long Lazarus had been in the tomb, or the fact that Jesus wept. The literary form of the Gospels and Acts is too detailed to be fictitious. The literary form of the Gospels and Acts are too detailed to be fictitious according to the style of that day. And that's so very important to remember. We are reading eyewitness accounts from folks who walked talked, touched, cried, embraced Jesus Christ. I mean, Peter put it clearly in Acts 4.20, as for me, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These are not fictitious stories, but detailed historical eyewitness accounts. And here's a final question for you to consider. Was the Bible part of a bigger agenda 
Now, many people will look at it this way. The Bible was good for that time period, and it met the needs of those people. But it's so outdated for us today. Or maybe it was the Bible that pushed to suppress people. That was popular about the time that the Da Vinci Code was written by Dan Brown over a decade ago. In this work of fiction, Dan Brown writes uh, these words, Powerful men in the early Christian church conned the world by propagating lies. Skeptics believe that legends found in the Bible are written to control and to restrict people. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this argument, but let me first say this. The, count, the, 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 the content found in the Bible is far too counterproductive to fit this narrative. It, it's just too counterproductive. And let me, let me lay it out this way. Consider the ragtag group of leaders that Jesus recruited. They were petty. They were jealous. Let's be honest, they were kind of cowards. We read about it in Sunday school this morning. They were hiding, weren't they? Why would the early church writers include such awful stories? Remember when James and John heard the words of Jesus when he said, I'm going to in, into Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and then three days later I'm going to rise again. And they were fighting over it. They heard the words of Jesus, he's about to be crucified, and they're fighting over who gets to be the greatest in this new kingdom of God. Why would they include that? Why would they include the leaders of the early church running in Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested? Or what about Peter, the pillar of the early church, denies Jesus three times. Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. That's the leader of the early church. Why would the early writers include the story in Gethsemane when Jesus asked God for another way? That doesn't fit the narrative of a legend, but of an eyewitness accounts. And since we're talking about eyewitnesses, if a man claimed to be God in the flesh, humiliated on the cross, and then rose, defeated the power of death through the resurrection, who would he appear to? Caesar? Pontius Pilate? Herod? Some of the Civil leaders of the day, right? No, he appeared to women. And in their culture, women were not regarded as trustworthy witnesses in the court of law, even up to the time of Constantine. And yet, Jesus doesn't appear to Herod, to Pontius Pilate, to Caesar, because it, the Bible doesn't fit the narrative the skeptics have presented. So as we look at the historical validity of the Bible, as we look at how, how it's been handed down and treated 
throughout the years. As we look at the details uh, of the New Testament, of the gospel, and we see how they're too counterproductive. As we look at each of these arguments, we need, very important, we need to be able to fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful man, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The whole point of this whole sermon series, God, I have a question. It kind of wrapped up there in Hebrews 12 too. Not every question is going to be answered perfectly. God is a mystery. The Holy Spirit is a mystery. Jesus Christ, the atonement on the cross, it's all a beautiful mystery that will always be a mystery. But when presented with arguments, we can, with reasonable faith, step out and say, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. We need this conversation. We need to be open to having these kind of conversations, to not just shut them down as ignorant. But they're real questions. Because if we don't, we're going to grow weary. Unless we are, faith is strengthened, unless we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're going to grow weary. It's a reminder to turn our eyes on him, to focus on him. And our faith is strengthened today as we consider these words, this gospel that Paul taught. He said that, what I received, I, I passed on to you. That Christ died for our sins according to how the Old Testament prophesied it. That he was, in fact, buried. And he was raised on the third day just as it was prophesied. We know and can set our eyes on Jesus, and we will not grow weary or lose heart. Because he did that for you, he did that for me. We're going to sing this song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful uh, that, uh, that you, through your power, through your love, through your justice. You brought us freedom over death. And as we consider that this morning, we come before you, asking that you continue to change our hearts, that you'll continue to strengthen our faith as we walk. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.